Star-studded music and dance till you drop food and drink galore. Second anniversary celebration. <laughs> to stay in the know about the second anniversary details, download the KBLA Talk 1580 app right now. Don't miss out on your chance to be a winner. At KBLA Talk 1580, when we come forward, we're bringing everybody with us. Happy anniversary, KBLA! The gunman who opened fire on an outlet mall in Dallas, in a Dallas, Dallas suburb on Saturday, killing at least eight people, had an apparent fascination with white supremacists or neo-Nazi beliefs that are now being examined by investigators as a possible motive for the attack. The mall shooting marks the second time in less than 10 days that Texas has had a mass killing in which a gunman trained a powerful, turned a powerful rifle on people. Texas Governor Greg Abbott told Fox News on Sunday that his priority in response to mass killings is to address mental health crisis or what he calls a mental health crisis rather than to tighten gun regulations, even though research shows that stricter gun laws could lessen the severity of mass killings and may decrease overall gun violence. Well, jurors will hear and start to deliberate soon on the civil lawsuit brought by author E. Jean Carroll against former President Donald Trump. Closing arguments were made today in that federal Manhattan court. Uh, e. Jean Carroll says that she was raped in the mid-1990s by Donald Trump. Trump did not make an appearance at the trial and did not call any witnesses. California's Reparations Task Force voted Saturday to approve recommendations on how the state may compensate and apologize to black residents for generations of harm caused by discriminatory policies. The nine-member committee, which first convened nearly two years ago, gave final approval at a meeting in Oakland to a hefty list of proposals that now go to state lawmakers to consider for reparations legislation. Some estimates from economists have projected that the state could owe upwards of $800 billion, or what some are saying is more than 2.5 times California's annual budget. Well, President Biden is set to welcome Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other top congressional leaders to the White House tomorrow for a pivotal round of discussions about the nation's taxes, spending, and debt as a potentially catastrophic government default rapidly approaches. Now, the meeting is not expected to produce anything close to a final agreement on a fiscal plan that could include raising the debt limit. But even small points of consensus could be hard to come by because Biden wants to expand federal spending and reduce future debt by raising taxes on high income earners and large companies. To the contrary, Republicans have already passed a bill to cut the federal discretionary spending, which includes spending on things like national parks, education, and more. And they also want to continue the tax break that was signed into law under Donald Trump. As we know, that tax break was for the wealthy. Trinity College in Dublin has decided to seek a new name for a central library the Berkeley, after concluding that the alumnus it honors, the 18th century philosopher George Berkeley, owned slaves in colonial Rhode Island and wrote pamphlets supportive of slavery. The University of California, Berkeley, was also named for the philosopher, according to the Berkeley Historical Society. Trustees of the then-private college settled on naming it after Berkeley in 1866, 
inspired in part by his missionary zeal and a poem he wrote. The University of California has already uh, changed the name of two of its buildings because those two individuals were also enslavers. Also in New York, the Manhattan District Attorney is weighing rather to convene a grand jury in the subway choking death of Jordan Neely, a young African-American homeless man who was choked by a 24-year-old Marine who said that Neely was acting erratically on the subway. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. I am excited to be joined today by two brilliant contributors. They are back with me. It's uh, Alan Orr. He's an extraordinary immigration attorney, and there's lots happening at the board, so I'm going to be sure to talk to Alan about what's happening around immigration and the border. And also lecturer and author Shayla Lawson is joining us today. And in my second hour, I go one-on-one with a member of the Writers Guild of America to discuss the writer's strike and how it's not only impacting all of Hollywood, but the impact that it will have on the U.S. economy. Lots of folks are grumbling because their favorite shows uh, may not uh, be aired on time this fall because the writers have vowed to sit this one out until they get what they are demanding from the big studios. But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. Now, you know, Maya Angelou told us when people show you who they are, we need to believe them. Apparently, Republican Senator Tim Scott did not get the memo or the lesson from Maya Angelou. Uh, But he's having to learn the hard way that the Republican Party that has spent decades maligning people of color don't see him as an exception to the rule, but they see him very much as a part of the same bunch of folks that they have a great deal of disdain for. And I say that because there's a recent article about how all of these Republican lawmakers are saying how wonderful a person uh, Scott is and how articulate he is and how well-spoken he is, but none have come forward to say they will endorse Tim Scott for president. And we know that Tim Scott has said on May 22nd, he's going to make a big announcement. He's been traveling the country and he's put together a committee uh, that is a precursor to someone announcing a run for president. These Republican lawmakers, some of his Senate colleagues are making these gratuitous statements about him. You know, that old dog whistle compliment about black folks being articulate and well-spoken. You know, we know what white folks mean when they uh, say you are articulate. But yet they won't say on the record that they support Tim Scott for president. Uh, We know he's going to launch that campaign and all of his buddies keep saying he's terrific, that he's top tier, that he's engaging, uh, that he's all of those wonderful adjectives. But they will not say that they are planning to stand with him, support him and endorse him in his run for president. So Tim Scott is learning the hard way that you can be a Republican, that you can think you're running with the group. You can do all the things, including, you know, disavowing uh, bills and laws that help folks of color. Uh, And when it comes time to see who's with you, he's getting a rude awakening in terms of where his Senate colleagues are, because not a single solitary individual that sits on that Senate with him, folks that have been serving with him side by side, have stood up to say anything other than 
He's a nice black guy that's articulate. All right, Tim, <laughs> you have been told. Now you know. Let's see what you do with that information. When we come forward, more of today's trending news with my expert contributors right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, I am back and I am joined today by uh, Shayla Lawson. She's an author and a lecturer and Alan Orr. He is an immigration attorney. Thank you so much, Shayla and Alan, for joining me today. I want to start with this subway case. This is really disturbing. Uh, I'm sure, Alan, you've been watching the back and forth between AOC, the congresswoman from New York, and Eric Adams, the mayor of New York. Apparently, uh, AOC said she witnessed a murder, talking about uh, Jordan Neely, who was uh, choked by the Marine on the subway. The Marine's family came out with a statement, said he was acting in self-defense, that he was in fear of his life, that uh, Jordan was acting erratically. And uh, Eric Adams pushed back on AOC and said, basically, you're sensationalizing this. And so there's, there's kind of back and forth between these two elected officials. But the thing that's troubling me about this story is if you've ever lived in New York, and now I can say Los Angeles included, but there are homeless people on the subway. There are people who are talking to themselves. There are people who are acting erratically. There are people doing all kinds of things. That's just a society we live in. Unfortunately, most of the homeless people in this country are African-American. Uh, the majority are African-American, despite we are definitely not the majority uh, in this country. And so I, I fundamentally believe this country has not leaned into or made the kind of effort it would make to end homelessness uh, if the folks who were homeless were a different color. And this isn't just my opinion. I've had homeless experts who worked at this for 30 years tell me that the homeless issue is basically a systemic racism issue. But I say all that to say, really, you choke a dude out for 15 minutes on the subway because he's acting erratically? Uh, what are you thinking? You're a lawyer, the uh, uh Bragg, the DA in Manhattan, says he's considering whether to submit this to a grand jury, and the Marine was let go after some questioning. Seems like a no-brainer to me that this would already be with the grand jury. Well, well, the problem is the story that they presented prior to any of this, even to a grand jury, has already been tainted because the very story they jumped off with was his past, and he's been arrested, that he had these issues, that he was unhoused. So he was already on trial and, and committed everything they said he had before the story even started. So that's one of the things that's really troubling. I think the other thing from a lawyer's perspective, if this was domestic violence and you go to someone's house and they're fighting, someone gets arrested. So I feel as though if someone dies, someone should get arrested until we can solve out the problem to see exactly what's going on. That's what the law should be going forward just to help resolve some of these cases because he should not have walked away. I will also say that all the other people on the train are culpable at some level for being horrible citizens for allowing that to happen because there were many other options to either engage or disengage him to move to another train. So anyone who's lived in any city, which I'm guessing this guy has, and he's been in a war zone, he can tell the difference between being attacked and there being just around. And when you attack someone from behind to do the, the chokehold is inconsistent with what he's saying about what's going on in the train. So all those things to me, as a lawyer says, BS, arrest him and move on with it because the media has already tried him. And that's, here is that once again the victim is tried before the assailant even has to stand before anyone and say who he is and what he was doing 
Yeah, Shayla, that's what's so and, disturbing about this story. Like, we know everything about poor Jordan Neely. His mama got killed and stuffed in a suitcase, and he had to testify in her trial. I mean, we know so much about his history, which at the time of this attack and this choking that took place, none of that was known to this Marine. He didn't know any of his, you know, Jordan's history. We now know it. We know very little about the attacker other than he was a Marine. What do you make about, I think it's a combination of things. One, the disdain that this country has for homeless people. Two, the disdain that people have for black men and this notion that black men are inherently dangerous. So that's just kind of a a horrible combination to be a black homeless man on a train and to be doing something which we're told he was really looking for food and he was hungry. Uh, But it's just like the worst combination, whether you're dealing with police officers or in this case, maybe we just call this guy a vigilante. I'm not sure. Maybe the guy was afraid. But, dude, just go to another train, you know, just keep keep it moving. Right. And when homeless people approach you, if they're not, you know, shooting at you or stabbing you, trying to stab you with a knife, walk away, run away, do something. I'm just so disturbed by the images, too, that it was just hard to watch him on the ground being choked. It's it's too much. I have a lot of thoughts about this issue because it's a community that I've been actively involved in for quite a long time. Because another thing that we have to address is the epidemic of queer artists of color who have uh, who are suffering from houselessness post pandemic in New York City. and the dangers that they face. I mean, right now, I, I've, I've been actively texting a friend of mine who is um, a queer artist in New York City who's actually coming to stay with me because they feel so threatened by the pervading atmosphere of what's happening right now. And I have been on the phone where they have tried to advocate for themselves with the police. And the police have told them that, uh, they, the police have actively threatened them knowing that I was on the phone as their advocate. Um, about their um, saying that what they were doing was harassment when they were trying to report the fact that they had recently been attacked, had been assaulted by somebody in New York City. So it's not just the idea that we have another um, Black person that, I mean, we're we're in the situation, we've seen Black people um, killed for um, hitting the wrong doorbell, you know? Now we see somebody attacked in a situation where they're riding the subway. There's also this pervasive um, anger that exists due to the affectations of seeing artists and not understanding exactly what, because, you know, some of the idea was that he was overtly, his his mannerisms were, were overt and it was, you know, and, you know, thinking about the situations that I've noticed in in trying to figure out houselessness situations for my friends who have been artists in, in New York City, because what happens when the economy goes down, when most of these people are contract employees or a lot of them are busking on the street, um, some of them have PhDs. Some of them, you know, my friend is is uh, is a you know is coming from Yale, had a former dance company. All of that was destroyed by. Um, the inactivity that happened over those years of the pandemic where people who are performers no longer have these bastions of places to go. And then the market for uh, queer people and particularly queer people who are HIV positive, which might not have affected Jordan Neely, but it definitely affects the larger black community. It's incredibly oversaturated in New York City. And most of the opportunities that are available for them in terms of temporary housing are incredibly dangerous. Often they're they're suffering from assault in these various situations. So I just want to add that information as context for what was happening in Jordan Neely's life before that situation arose. And then on top of that, having talked to a lot of my friends who are involved in the protesting right now, there is some... Um, 
pretty qualified information that likely the the person who um, who choked Jordan Neely to death um, was the son of a police officer, which is part of the reason we're not seeing anything happen. <laughs> that imagine if this person is as, as is alleged, and it's coming from you know a variety of pretty pretty qualified sources, the son of a New York City police officer. It explains why we saw him walk off of a train after leaving a person's body in the street, and nothing happened to him. So it's it's a, an ongoing part of the epidemics that we know are happening. But I also just want to use it as an opportunity to shed light on the specific concerns of uh, Black queer artists because yeah. people love watching us on TikTok. People love following us on Instagram. They think when somebody has 14k followers, you know, because because Jordan Neely is also someone is one of those people that you would have you would have recognized from being in that algorithm of people that people love to watch because he was an entertainer because they they love the idea of having us as entertainers, but they don't see what the cost is or the fact that so many of these people are making absolutely no money off of the art that we pirate and value. And this is a situation this is a situation that that, that um, affects so many of them. I've had several friends mm. who have been in similar situations and you know it's it's become part of my advocacy to do what I can to try and provide them shelter when I can, but it, it shouldn't be an individual personal problem. I make it that because it matters to me that much, but um, people like Jordan Neely should not be on the street to begin with. Yeah. And we need to do more advocacy about that when it comes to arts and entertainment in general. Well, the, the issue that I said, you know, having interviewed several nationally recognized specialists and experts that work on issues of homelessness across this country, people are on the streets because it's they, homelessness is primarily seen as a black issue. I mean, they just tell you plain and simple. 100%. It's just an issue of race. And if, if we saw 40% of if forty percent of the people on the streets were white, we would not have you know the number mm -hmm. of homeless people in this country that we have. So you know we talk about systemic racism, and this kind of brings me to this reparation story, uh, Alan. So again, the media frames how we think about issues. So California votes this task force meeting for two years. They they have this report that they're going to present to the legislators. Legislators have to decide you know if they're going to adopt it. But the story is always told about reparations, about how much it's going to cost. Oh, my God. It's going to cost $2 billion. It's going to cost $8 billion. It's going to bankrupt the city. It's going to bankrupt the state. We never tell the story in terms of the harm that has been done to black folks. And I actually saw uh, something on the Instagram account for California Governor Gavin Newsom. He was in the South someplace uh, visiting civil rights monuments. And he himself, this educated very sophisticated governor who's been a lieutenant governor, who's been a mayor, who's been in public service, service 30 years, says he did not recognize the horrors of the civil rights movement and being at that bus stop where Rosa Parks was and being at some of those monuments just brought chills to him. So why is it that every time a reparation story is told, it's always about how much it's going to cost, never about how much it's cost us, as a community and all the wealth that we've lost and all of the, the racial trauma that we've experienced, you know, so already the California story is being framed as, Oh my God, this is going to bankrupt California or this is two times, you know, the budget of the state of California and not a single sentence about what have black folks in California endured since the 1800s. So the main currency that the United States deals in right now is fear and fear of cost. 
and also in the sum zero game that someone's taking something away from you that belongs to you. And the, the difficulty that people have dealing with reparations as an issue is they think of it abstractly. But if I took them to wills and trust in a state's court and sort of said, well, when your grandfather died, if I just take all that property from you and you never get that money, then it becomes a different conversation. Or we talk about tax refunds, or we talk about how they generationally benefited from these things, even so as paying for some, some um, enslaved people to be free. So I think it's a very complicated conversation to have with people. But yeah, it's something that's going to cost you in your pocket because it's something that costs people in their pocket. So we need to just adjust to that reality because that's exactly what it's about. Yeah, I had such a great conversation last week with a British author and journalist, Alex Renton, who uh, in conversations with his mother and going through his attic, learned that his family had owned over 900 slaves uh, mm. in the UK that they had working in you know, the Caribbeans on a sugar plantation, which mm. is like the deadliest work that you can do. Mm-hmm. And his mom had asked his grandfather, did they own slaves? The grandfather says, yes, not that many. And it wasn't that bad. Mm. And he discovered mm-hmm. it was a whole lot mm-hmm. and it was horrible that the life mm-hmm. expectancy of these slaves was somewhere in like three to four years and that the women were forced to just keep having babies after babies because the babies would grow up to become teenagers and young adult work three or four years and die because mm-hmm. of the brutality of working on a sugar plantation. And he confronted his family. He's since written a book. He's since become an activist uh, mm-hmm. trying to get the UK to atone for the millions of slaves that they owned in the Caribbeans. And he says it's cost him some friends. Uh, you know, some people don't speak to him, including some members of his own family, but that he feels so personally convicted to tell the stories and to talk to his fellow Brits about this concept that, you know, we weren't there, so why should we pay? And he tells them, yeah, you're benefiting today. You're... Well, right after the coronation, what a wonderful time to talk about this because everything the king had on was stolen. <laughs> Absolutely. And all of the money and the wealth and the power is because of the uncompensated labor, forced labor, forced brutality. So, you know, and go ahead, jump in. We got a couple minutes. I'd like before. to hop in and, yeah, and just and mention, you know, we're always dealing with the abstraction of slavery. And so often the thing that we ignore is the fact that, um, Black wealth was literally stolen by the government during the during the antebellum period. As we stopped, as we moved out of slavery, we started accumulating wealth for ourselves because we had closer access to wealthy people by virtue of being related to them, by virtue of all of those babies that were born out of slavery. And the government actually actively stole that money. Um, there's a wonderful book that I loved called The Color yeah, The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. And why I really appreciated it is because um, the author, um, I'm going to mess up her name, but uh, Mirsa Baradaran, I just love the fact that ethnically it's somebody who's outside of the fray. Mm-hmm. And she was, you know, just laying it down that, that the government still, like after slavery, if we even just look at, you know, if, we, if we're not concerned about compensating people for the work that they didn't do, we're not concerned with compensating both the architect and the builders of the White House, if we're not concerned with, uh, you know, all of the other, uh, the, uh, you know, all of the other, th- you know, if we're not concerned about Kansas City, um, you know, all of the wealth that was destroyed when Kansas City was burned is one of the wealthiest black cities, you know, that was ever imaginable. 
um, then we should look at the fact that the government actually stole black money in order to build the bank. She listed them. If you go back to, to J.P. Morgan Chase, yeah. if you go back to the history of Bank of America, if you go back to the history of so many of these individual banks, it was money that they literally stole from black people by offering these supposed trusts that then when they were ready to cash out or pass on to their to their families as generational wealth, they realized the money was not there because it was, was handed over to lo for loans for the Italians or for different people. And so we don't even have to look at it at, in this direction of how are we going to abstractly compensate for slavery? We have all we have the dollars and cents amounts right. if we go back to these banks. We have the receipts is what you're saying. When we come we forward, have the receipts. we want to talk about not only did they steal the money, then they went around and named every freaking thing in this country after these mm. enslavers. <laughs> so, I mean, like, add insult to injury, right? Just pour salt on the wounds uh, when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Stay with us. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and I'm joined in this hour with uh, Alan Orr. He's the founder of Orr Immigration Law Firm, and Shayla Lawson is here. She's she is a professor at Amherst College and the author of This is Major. All right, uh, Professor Lawson, I'll call you because we're talking about a university story. So Trinity College in Dublin, this is a university in Ireland, will remove the yeah. name Berkeley from its main library on campus. The university concluded that George Berkeley, for whom the library is named, owned slaves in Colonial Rhode Island. Now, you may be saying, why do we care about this? This is in you know, Ireland. It's not in the U.S. But here's why it's so important, I think. The University of California, Berkeley, which is right in my backyard, was also named for the 18th century philosopher. A spokesperson for UC Berkeley says they have no plans of changing its name. So they're like, do whatever you want to do, Dublin, Ireland. But us in California, we're going to think about reparations, but we're not changing the name of this university. What do you make of all of these? Uh, we, we saw this uh, with, you know, the Audubon Society and, and several other national organizations having to have this reckoning, internal reckoning about the names of their buildings and coming to grips with the fact that so many of these buildings and institutions were named after enslavers. I, I have I have so many feelings. I mean, it was it's really wonderful that we got to you know introduce the fact that I am a professor um, at Amherst College at the at the top of the hour because Amherst is a place where it it, it has a similar discussion. I mean, not but in this situation. Um, Lord Jeffrey Amherst, what his legacy is that he was the person who uh, gave the smallpox blankets to the Iroquois. So he's one of the, you know, our first national terrorists. Um, and he was um, <laughs> constantly writing <laughs> about right. ways to exterminate indigenous people. Okay, and so one Mr. Of the, you know, Amherst. <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's particularly funny because I just remember, you know, I, I, I love my students. And I remember the date they came to me because they had just managed to get um, a local hotel to change its name. Its name was the Lord Jeffrey Inn. And they're like, uh, you know, Jeffrey was this horrible person, et cetera, et cetera. And so then I finally looked it up and I'm like, but, but you know, little friends, they're like, that is, that is Amherst. So we would need to start at fundamentally changing the name of this entire town 
and this entire college. You know, it's not just about the small things. It is about the big things. And what I love about the issue with Berkeley is that we're looking at the idea of slavery internationally. This is not just a Black issue. Mm-hmm. Like the the history of, um, of enslavement for Irish people is something that has also been completely erased, denied, and ignored. And I love the fact that this is an issue that we have the opportunity to champion as Black people because of the fact that um, it, it it proves that you know our our legacy of liberty has a lot to do with making sure that there is equity for all and there is a conversation that includes this history for all so i do think particularly given what berkeley is supposed to stand for it's something that they're going to have to take a look at but what gets really difficult about these um, posh institutions is their trusts you know the ways that their boards are set up the ways that their history is set up and you know with you know, i can speak you know directly when i think about looking at amherst because it's a new england college we're looking at these are daughters of the this daughters of the revolution money these are people who had irish money right. <laughs> you know i don't know a whole lot about Ber- how berkeley's money is set up but i think if we go far enough back part of the reason that they're kind of like hmm, the reason why we're concerned about his missionary service is because who was doing the migrating you know, those folks over there who were able to afford to to build the college, there is, if we go back far enough, there's blood money. There's blood money in every institution that we're looking at. And I, I, I think that the nomenclature is a conversation, but we also have to look at how these educational uh, institutions are funded and how much is that lip service to the idea of changing names going to last when we also have to look at fundamentally the, 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 the ways that the these organizations are structured and who they're including in their conversations. Who are they bringing in at top levels and not just who are the students that they're listening to as they, uh, you know, try to diversify and listen to Gen Z and, and, and Gen A and see how upset they are about these histories. But like, how are they actually changing the infrastructure to include people who are having really conscious discussions about what these institutions want to be? Yeah, I feel like, Alan, Berkeley, UC Berkeley is being pretty arrogant because what we know is that there's a global pro- protest movement that you know claims many of our public buildings and monuments are honoring the wrong people. And it's not. Oh, can I? Sorry, can I say one? I, I sure. just want to say say one dig about Amherst. I'm sorry about um UC Berkeley. So UC Berkeley based an entire class on my book. I think I'm ready to see Frank Ocean. Um, and when I uh, the book and because it was based on um, Frank Ocean the artist, it got a lot of coverage in, in Billboard and lots of different magazines. So I contacted them because I was never included in any of the articles. I was never mentioned, wow. and I just mentioned that I would love to just come and uh, you know. Uh, come and, and talk to the students or do whatever, like I was just volunteering. And their response to me is that they were not in a position to do so. And that if I wanted to come on my own dime, maybe some of the students could meet me in the cafeteria. So despite the but, way but they're supposed why? to be why, organized- why were they, it was your book. You're the author of the yes. book. They're teaching a whole yes. course on why weren't you welcome? Yes. Yes. Well, we're, we're asking the same, you know, we're asking generally the same questions when it comes to their, their, their decision that, nope, we're not going to change these names. Yeah, the course was based on my book. The, uh, the PhD student who had organized the course was a former protege of mine. Like, I, you know, I have, again, we have the receipts. I have all the receipts. I have the email that they sent me where they were like, if you want to, you know, if you feel like you want to come on your own dime after they did several interviews with multiple magazines wow. <laughs> about the fact that they were hosting this Frank Ocean class. They, you know, so I'm just saying this on a very small scale. They have a history of being incredibly arrogant about what they're supposedly representing, which is supposed to be liberalism and intellectualism, and what is the way that they actually traffic that. I'm yeah. not surprised. 
Well, Alan, you know, they got a bigger problem because it's not just the university you see Berkeley, you know, it's a whole town. So I guess right. they're fearful that if they give an inch, they may have to, you know, eat the whole roll and get rid of the name of the university and change the name of the town. But I don't know how they sit in this space and think that they can just flip, you know, a finger to everyone and say, we're not even remotely considering changing our name when these students in Ireland have, you know, managed to protest in a way that has gotten the attention of the university leaders at Dublin and have, you know, accomplished something that's pretty significant. I don't even know why this has to be that big of a conversation. When you know better, you need to do better. So what do you right. make of Berkeley uh, and it's at this stage, uh, I think, arrogant stance? Well, <laughs> well, I think Berkeley is just showing who Berkeley is. And I think it's, you know, the confusing thing about this is I'm from the South. And removing a flag doesn't change the people who are behind the flag and the attitude. So sometimes I don't need you, the decorations. I actually need the real change. And, and as an African-American, many of us walk around with the names of our enslavers and rapers every day, sort of signing our names proudly, saying we are Washington or Johnson or whomever uh, it may be. So I think that there's a really tough balance there. But I do think we need to definitely tear down and educate people. Part of that education is removing that Americana thought that we always wore the white hat. We always were the good people. We never did anything wrong. We were always on the right side of everything. And that's just not so. And I think more so even for, as Shayla points out, a place like UC Berkeley that prides itself. I mean, this whole promotional mm-hmm. marketing, you know, is about being this bastion of liberalism. And We yet, ain't that woke. Yeah, we ain't that woke in California. <laughs> no. We can eat all the sprouts we want to eat and all the palm trees we want. But at the end of the day, we have have our issues in California, just like states in the South, just like states yeah. in the Northeast and all over this country. And I think that's what's being exposed. So I hope the students at UC Berkeley decide that this is an important enough issue, whether they change the name or not. But I just think the arrogance of Berkeley uh, on this issue is, is what's you know really disgusting to me. And, yeah, you may ultimately get to a point where you decide not to. But to say we're not going to even have a conversation about it, I hope the students say that is not going to be the last and final word on this issue. Uh, When we come forward, more trending news right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Alan, I promised there was going to be an immigration discussion, and here it is, uh, the ending of (laughs) Title 42. We know Title 42 kept the border closed to asylum seekers uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. It was seen as a pretty uh, harsh policy that Biden had vowed to end. And then he kind of punted on it, said it has something, you know, go defer to the CDC. But I guess it is officially, uh, Title 42 is officially ending. But I guess when you read about immigration policies, there's this battle and this fight between whether Biden has really been, uh, you know, a, a, a better champion than Trump on some of these issues. And some folks point to Biden's immigration policies and say, look, they are pretty much the same as Donald Trump's. Help us understand what has the Biden administration gotten right and where does it need to improve, particularly going into an election year? Sure, sure. So I, I will say with the departure of Susan Rice, a lot of the policies that Biden has been criticized for are also leaving the White House. Uh, she was a relic of a different time in the administration about keeping people out. And so now the table will be bigger in understanding will welcome. And I think one of the things that we have to understand about Title 42 is that it was supposed to end four times. And each time it was supposed to end, there's been this order. And now we're going to tell a story of two states. We're going to tell a story of California. We're going to tell a story of Texas. 
Texas, the governor, after all of these gun violence that you heard, after these immigrants were attacked, he is now making his own army to protect the border, which is against federal law, right? Which is only going to lead to more deaths of these people trying to cross the border because, you know, the good old boys are going to be shooting and saying they were in fear of their lives. And then you have California who's saying, there's a way we can do this. Everybody at our border is not from South America. They're also from Vietnam. Some of them are from the Caribbean. Some of them are from Georgia, the, the country Georgia, not the state Georgia, um, and to have this sort of understanding. And so the fundamental problem that we need to understand is government. And that's why we need to all go back to the eighth grade and understand how things work. Gun laws and immigration are a problem for Congress, and Congress ain't mm -hmm. done nothing since the 30s. Fire all up, if you were asking me, because the last immigration reform was Ronald Reagan with the numbers, with the way we handle asylum and everything. So it's not two years, it's not 10 years, it's been 30 years, it's not just COVID, right? It, it was even before COVID. And what this gives is the Republicans an easy way to say the border's open, the border's open, the border's open. If the border's been open for 10 years by God, Wally, then what's the problem? We have not been taken over yet. We haven't lost Texas. We haven't <laughs> lost Louisiana. So they're the major problem. The problem with Biden is a little bit of the DNC isn't really in his corner. And there's no win in this situation when you don't have partners. That's the thing that I really think is important, that the Congress and the executive branch need to work together to address this problem, to put out the money that Biden needs to get the staff down there to get the border control. Biden sent troopers to the border just like Trump did. But the difference is the intent. Trump sent people to the border to keep people out. Biden is sending those people to the border to help in the situation. Mm -hmm. And while we can't solve the situation, we'll never control who's coming to our border. We can't control how people come to our border, but we can control what our laws are and we can control due process. And I think the most important thing that we need to understand on a black radio station is that it's only the poor people, the black and brown people, the black people from Cuba, the black people from Venezuela that are showing up at the Southern border who can get asylum. If you can fly in, then you can still apply for asylum. There's no conversation about that. Mm. It's all about national security when you talk who are just coming to the border who walked a thousand miles to get there 50 miles or 100 miles but people the 11 million people that have been here undocumented since 1996 that they haven't sorted or given them documents yet what happened to that what, what about those people what about those 200 undocumented irish white people in new york city you never hear about them you only see the brown and faces so this is a political game that is sort of stacking against us and we can't play that game anymore this sum zero game is crazy there are 11 million jobs that are open and there is no lump sum of jobs these individuals can do these jobs and support our economy and to keep us from going off the brink and the edge. The only way of not reaching the debt ceiling, do you know who that helps? It does not help the working class. It only helps people who are rich because they then get to leverage the wages that they increased since COVID because there'll be more people looking for these jobs. So we need to be smart enough to say, look, I'm not falling for this game where you're saying you really don't want to reach the debt ceiling because if you didn't want to, you would have done it just like the other 42 times that you've done it in the past. So oh, don't yeah. play games with me. That's total BS because we know under Trump, you know, they kept raising the debt ceiling without any conditions attached. But Alan, real quickly, Texas, you're right. So uh, Greg Abbott says, I'm building my own army and arming these people with, you know, high-powered weaponry. What what can the federal government do? Because states don't have jurisdiction over our immigration laws and policies, yet they are never taking never. this control power into their own hands. We saw DeSantis doing it. We see Abbott doing it. What, what can the Biden right. administration do uh, to I need a stronger Merrick Garland. I need a stronger Merrick Garland. I think okay. he's a great person. He's a nice person, but I need somebody who's ready to kick butt. That Christian that he has over there or, or um, the other Gupta, those women, 
When they show up, they get stuff done. Garland is sort of tempered with these states because he's, I don't know, he's some Americana that he thinks that people are going to do the noble thing and they're going to do the right thing. No, no, no. I need you to go in there and shut it down. And also, I need the United Nations to come in and say, you do not have the right Texas to do against Venezuelans because that's a country in which you are not part of control. And if you do, you're in violation of international policy. Mm, Okay, so we need stronger, uh, a stronger response from our DOJ. Real quickly, uh, Shayla, talking about Greg Abbott, he said on Fox, I'm not thinking about guns. You know, they never mentioned guns. (laughs) This recent killing at a mall, just scary, horrific, hearing these witnesses talk about what they saw, these bloody bodies, you know, nine-year-old killed. He says, I'm going to strengthen my mental health you know, policies. And we know that's BS because they never do anything about mental health. They they won't even, in some of these states, allow the expansion of Medicaid. So we know there's no real commitment to our mental health system, our health system in general. But what do you make of this just brazen, I guess, response, which is, no, this is not guns. This is mental health. Everybody now that shoots anybody has a mental health issue. I don't care what you do. You could be a neo-Nazi. You could be a white supremacist. But it's mental health. And we're going to talk about we're going to fix it, but we're really not going to fix it. And this is, we're talking about the neo-Nazi, right? Like, the neo-Nazi that just killed these eight, I think it's nine people that have died now. I, I don't, you can't even keep up with it. It happens so right. quickly, it's yeah. hard to even keep up with these. Uh, and it's still no, tragic. It's, these are people's lives. These are people's mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and kids. So we can't grow so numb to this that we don't care about it's, these families. No, it's true. And I and laughter is one of my tools to get through the not you know the nausea like i'm i'm so tired of this story particularly what comes to mind is every time we have one of these situations we talked about with jordan neely the situation of knowing all of his personal history you know they're always throwing up this idea of oh he wasn't picked you know whatever gunman when whatever new racist bigoted gunman uh, shows up on the scene it's you know oh he wasn't picked for the football team his father didn't buy him a pizza you know, it's always this this cavalcade of excuses for the idea that this was a person that was definitely unwell, but also somebody whose particular leanings of how they expressed that unwellness had a lot to do with hate and tyranny and a kind of fear that this country continues to enjoy trafficking in without any concern for its victims, because it does not matter in this country what you look like when it comes to gun violence. The gun always wins. It's the you know, it's the only black thing that they continue to advocate for. (laughs) But it's just, it's just, it's just so absurdly crazy to me to hear the same, um, the same rhetoric again. You know, we've talked about this on the show before. It's thoughts and prayers, and then it's mental health advocacy that never actually happened. But I was so excited. It felt like a victory to hear a conversation that actually addressed the fact that this person had neo-Nazi leanings and that this person had white supremacist, um, you know, there were underpinnings of white supremacy in his history because we have not had the opportunity to discuss how, how many synagogues, you know, how many, how many mosques, how many black churches are usually the targets of all of this violence? You know, how many queer spaces, how many places where that they know that they have access to children or other vulnerable populations? And that has so much to do with what these, these definitely unwell people, the kind of information that they're consuming. Because there's one thing with having mental health issues, as we saw in the case of Jordan Neely, 
And there's another thing with using those mental health issues as an excuse to um, to commit violence against people. Yes, yeah, really. really I think what's so galling is it's become so synonymous now, right? You get an AR-15, shoot up a bunch of people, and immediately we say you have mental health issues. And we know the majority of people that have mental health issues are not violent. They are not no. shooting. They're not killing. No. Uh, they are not engaging in the kind of activities that we're seeing. And, and what Republicans refuse to do is to be honest about the fact that it is access to guns. It's the number of guns that we have in this country. And it's not mental health. And, you know, in some ways they're making it even more difficult for people who have real mental health issues to get the help that they need because of the stigma associated with mental health. And, you know, people with mental health, whether they're people on subways or, you know, people in hospitals or people getting out of hospitals are not inherently violent. But that's the message that, you know, these Republican governors who refuse, refuse to address the gun issue. And you just wonder, what is it going to take? You know, friends of governors, you know, friends of elected officials, children, you know, what is going to be the the tipping point? I I have to believe, because we have to remain hopeful, that there is going to be a tipping point in this country where these people, and if not, then the next thing we need to do, and we need to do that now, is make sure these people are not in control of our states and our federal government. So at some point I get angry at the people in Texas and angry at the people in Florida that gave these governors another chance to run mm, for office, to be in office. So we need people to wake up and stop waiting for these uh, elected officials to do the right thing. We need to do the right thing and throw mm-hmm. them out of office and make sure that we are electing people in office that understand the vulnerability that we all face. If you can't go to the mall, I mean, mm. if we can't go to church, if we can't go to a mosque, if we can't worship, we can't shop, we can't play, we are all in danger. And that's, mm. uh, I, I think, how we end this show is everybody got an obligation to do something about this. And that do something is called vote. Yes. All right, guys. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Alan. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Shayla. My best to both of you. Thank we'll you. see you both real soon when we come forward. We're going to be talking to a writer about this writer's strike and how it is impacting not just Hollywood, but the entire economy of the United States and what is likely to happen. you got thousands of people who will not be getting a paycheck for the foreseeable future uh, after some news and sports right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. You've earned. That's right. Everything you've earned doubled. The cash back from trips, restaurants, all doubled. Seriously, though, see terms and check it out for yourself at discover.com slash match. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. Three weeks into the NBA season, the Lakers were 2-10 and and heading to the lottery. Tonight, they are just two wins away from the Western Conference Finals. The Lakers are up 2-1 on Golden State with a chance to put some serious pressure on the defending NBA champs. Game four tonight is seven on TNT. The hottest ticket in L.A. in the fall and winter could be the USC men's basketball program. LeBron's son, Bronny, a McDonald's All-American, announced his intentions to enroll at USC. USC already has a commitment from Isaiah Collier, a point guard from Marietta, Georgia, and the nation's number one recruit in the class of 2023. With Collier and Bronny James, USC will have a much higher profile next season and will likely pass UCLA as LA's best college basketball team. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We begin top story with late breaking news. Is it going to succeed, yes or no? I think it's going to succeed. It's going to succeed. It's going to succeed. Can you believe it? 
Y'all did it. KBLA Talk 1580 is about to celebrate its second anniversary on Juneteenth. And no terrible twos around here. We couldn't be more excited about all the good news we'll be announcing soon, including the launch of some new shows to keep giving you more of what you've been looking for. Come on! Smart Radio for Smart People. Hey, it's our celebration, but you get all the gifts. We'll be giving away fresh merch, swag bags, and a chance for you to join the private invitation-only star-studded music and dance till you drop food and drink galore second anniversary celebration. To stay in the know about the second anniversary details, download the KBLA Talk 1580 app right now. Don't miss out on your chance to be a winner at KBLA Talk 1580. When we come forward, we're bringing everybody with us. Happy anniversary, KBLA! The gunman who opened fire on an outlet mall in Dallas on Saturday, killing at least eight people, had an apparent fascination with white supremacists or neo-Nazi beliefs that are now being examined by investigators as a possible motive for the attack. Texas Governor Greg Abbott told Fox News Sunday that his priority in response to mass killings is to address mental health crises rather than to tighten gun regulations, even though research shows that stricter gun laws could lessen the severity of mass killings and may decrease overall gun violence. Jurors will begin deliberating in the civil lawsuit brought by Arthur E. Jean Carroll against former President Donald Trump, who she says raped her in the mid-1990s. Closing statements were given today in the U.S. District Court in Manhattan. Uh, Carroll put on a, a litany of witnesses to support her claim that she was raped in a dressing room in a high-end department store in New York. Donald Trump did not make an appearance at the trial and did not put on any witnesses. Carol told jurors that she has come to realize she has permanent scars. California's Reparations Task Force voted Saturday to approve recommendations on how the state may compensate and apologize to black residents for generations of harm caused by discriminatory policies. The nine-member committee, which first convened nearly two years Years ago, gave final approval at a meeting in Oakland to a hefty list of proposals that now go to state lawmakers to consider for reparations legislation. Some estimates from economists have projected that the state could owe upwards of $800 billion to black residents of California. President Biden is set to welcome Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other top congressional leaders to the White House on Tuesday for a pivotal round of discussions about the nation's taxes, spending and debt as a potentially catastrophic government default rapidly approaches. The meeting is not expected to produce anything close to a final agreement on a fiscal plan that could include raising the debt limit. But even small points of consensus could be hard to come by. Biden wants to expand federal spending and reduce future debt by raising taxes on high income earners and large companies. And to the contrary to Biden's plan, the Republicans have already passed a bill to cut federal discretionary spending on things such as national parks, education and more. They also want to cancel tax breaks for certain low emission energy sources that were a part of Mr. Biden's signature climate laws. And Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, has decided to seek a new name for its central library called now the Berkeley. After concluding that the alumnus it honors, the 18th century philosopher George Berkeley, owned slaves in colonial Rhode Island and wrote pamphlets supportive of slavery. The University of California, Berkeley, 
was also named for the philosopher. Trustees at that university says they have no plans on changing the name of the college. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. It's hour two. And in this hour, I'm going one-on-one with Kirk Moore. He is a writer. He's a member of the Writers Guild of America. And as you know, screenwriters continue their strike against Hollywood companies. The two sides remain what some say are a a galaxy apart, pretending for a potentially long and destructive standoff. The Writers Guild, which represents 11,500 screenwriters, went on strike last week after contract negotiations with studios, streaming services, and networks failed. Uh, By the end of last week, companies punched back at the union in the news media, and striking writers celebrated the disruption of shows filming from finished scripts. Uh, We're going to talk to Kirk Moore. He's the writer of American Crime, 13 Reasons, and For Life. We're going to talk about the impact that this strike has not only on writers, not only on the entertainment business and those who work in that business, but on the economy. Because everything that happens in entertainment, particularly in big cities like Los Angeles, uh, New York, Atlanta, there's some ripple effect. Uh, It's not just the writers who won't be getting a paycheck, but think about all of those other ancillary services that support your favorite television shows. I'm talking about the people that cook the meals, the caterers, the uh, the drivers, the, the car services that are used to transport people back and forth from the airport to the studio, uh, the costumers. Uh, a good friend of mine works in costuming. The makeup and hair artists that do all the hair and makeup for the folks you see in television shows. So there are thousands and thousands of people that work on uh, television television shows and movies who are going to be impacted by this strike. And we know the last time there was a strike, it lasted for about a hundred days. A lot of people were wiped out. They were financially devastated. Uh, We know strikes are always difficult. We just went through a big strike uh, with LA Unified School District here in Los Angeles. So when we come forward, uh, Kirk Moore is going to help us understand what the writers want Uh, And what the chances of reaching a compromise are, particularly a compromise that may happen in a shorter period of time than the last strike that lasted 100 days. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time. I'm on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, we are back. We're talking about the Writers Guild of America, the strike. It entered its second week uh, on Monday, and no sign of any progress being made in labor talks as the entertainment industry uh, braces for what could be a protracted work stoppage, uh, surpassing the one that occurred even 15 years ago. We know that hundreds of picketers have walked strike lines throughout uh, the days, the last uh, five days or so at major studios, uh, and that negotiations between the union and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents the studios, uh, those conversations have yet to yield a deal. Uh, I want to talk uh, about what the strike means, not just for those who write 
for television shows and movies, but what it means for all of those people that also work in production uh, to bring you your favorite shows and you know what you can expect in terms of television watching and viewing for the next couple of weeks and definitely the next couple of months. Kirk Moore is joining me in this hour. He is a writer. He's a member of the Writers Guild of America. He's uh, has credits on American Crime, 13 Reasons, and for Life. Thank you, Kirk, so much for being with us today. Uh, I think you're on m- mute. Kirk. How you doing? Thank you for having me. I was all muted already. That's okay. Fantastic. Thank you for joining. Just uh, give me your uh, you know, unfiltered thoughts about how you are feeling in this moment about this strike. I mean, it is a it's a sort of a an odd thing. I mean, a week ago I was on a show and working and preparing to go to Vancouver where we um are in production. And then, you know, last Monday, the agreement um, was not reached and then it was pencils down. So um, everything had to stop. I I do want to sort of address something that I heard you um, just speak on it in regards to the other the, the crew and everybody involved in the production. So the way it works right now is that, you know, a lot of the productions that are happening are still going on. Although the writers, although we are on strike, um, there are shows that are already in production, mm-hmm. meaning that the scripts have already been written. Um, yeah, even though that's a little hairy because in TV production, you kind of are rewriting. When you're in production, you're rewriting every day. And so we should make a point, and that's a good point because under the uh, the guidelines, even a script that's been written while you are on strike, that script cannot be altered, cannot be edited right. according to the guidelines. So those shows that are in production, they have to follow that script to the T if they are staying yes. in compliance, correct? Yes, because there are no um, writers on set. So typically the way, you know, TV works is, you know, they're um, kind of a bit of a hierarchy, but um, the producers are also the writers. And so, once you become a producer, typically you go to set, whether that's in L.A. or, you know, somewhere else. And um, and then you have to watch over set. Most writers typically cover their own episodes, but even that is changing, which is also part of the reason why we're striking, because a lot of the writers now, the showrunners or the creators are sort of the only people that are going to set. And so after being in a room for 10 to 20 weeks, then the writers go away and then the showrunner is now having to shoulder all of that responsibility where it used to be that you would have the writer who would write that particular episode would then go to set and actually, you know, see that episode through. Um, and, and now a lot of that is changing and or dwindling. But let's go back to your original point, because you you want to make the point that there are shows in production right now where the scripts have been finished and mm-hmm. those uh, shows will continue to film. So those workers, the, the craft workers, the drivers, the hair, makeup, the wardrobers, they're still working on those shows, right? They're still working. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is that we've been striking at a lot of these places and a lot of these places where they are um, producing and so and where they are in production. And so a lot of times, whether it's the Teamsters or a lot of they won't cross the line. So then they will just turn their trucks around and then the production will have to stop. Okay. So even so, though technically they could show up, they're standing in solidarity with the writers guild saying, no, we're not going to 
bring our production trucks or bring our equipment here because we're members of unions as well. But let me ask exactly. you. So if I am in production, say on Stranger Things, I just read that that show is going to have to delay the next uh-huh. season. But if we're already in production and the script has been written and as you said, that that team can continue to work. But what happens when they run out of, you know, scripts? So you maybe you got two or three that are in the can, but now you've already produced those two or three. Now what happens? Um. Then now you wait. Um, cause now nothing is being written. So, you know, I, I think one of the, um, studio heads spoke recently about like how they have enough content to last them about a year. That's oh. because it's sort of like, it's a weird thing. Like, because we were anticipating that there was potentially a strike and the studios knew it. And then so did the writers. So we were like, the writers were technically working trying to get stuff done so we can get paid so that we have money just in case we have to strike, which means that we're giving the studios additional content that would make it more difficult for us. So it's like a, it's like a weird. So you kind of help the studios prepare for the strike that now that gets used against you because they're saying, look, we can wait y'all out. We got a year worth of your content that you wrote. You did get paid for, but you're not getting paid now. Do you believe that studio head when he says they have a year? That's a lot of content. I mean, honestly, like I I really don't know. I mean, everybody is kind of on a different sort of cycle in terms of what they've been doing and what they've been buying. So, I mean, it's it's easier to sort of look at broadcast like NBC, ABC, because they typically have a very strict schedule. You know, there's fall and then so their shows come out, you know, August and September. So a lot of those shows that are going to come out in August and September, they were already shooting. Okay. They've been shooting the show that I was on. We've been shooting for the last four months. Okay. So there are episodes that have already been done. So even those even those networks, they will probably have at least for new shows, they'll probably have at least a half a season worth of stuff there. So they, in theory, could get from August, September through November, December. They could get to almost half to the end of the year. That is that's that's a horrible way to, you know. But yes, potentially that that is I, I hope that the uh, I think that one thing that will really sort of help us out is that like with the Teamsters, SAG, the DGA, like when these other guilds start because the DGA has to now vote on their contract um, in, a, in a few weeks. And then in June or July, I can't remember, SAG has to vote on their contract. So if SAG says, well, we're going to strike. So now there are no actors and there are no writers. So there's nothing. <laughs> then there's a um, real problem. Huh? Yeah. Then, you okay. Know, so, so, but how, how, what percentage, that's, you raise a good point about those shows that are in production, have been in production, maybe have four, can start a new season in August and September and maybe get through half a season. What percentage would you say of shows that represent? Is that like half of the shows that people watch or 25%? I I honestly don't know. I would say probably in network, it's probably about half, if not maybe a little more, um, because they just run on a very specific sort of cycle. They got to get their fall shows out. They have their winter program and they... So a lot of their stuff is done a year ahead for the most part because they have to plan for that. And so, you know, our show was originally supposed to be a mid-season show, the show that I'm work was working on, mm-hmm. but then they held it so that it can come out in the fall so that now they have stuff for the fall. 
What about yeah. the nightly show, the night shows? We know the late night shows, the Jimmy Kimmel's, the Stephen Colbert's. Those shows shut down like immediately, like on May second. Yeah, 2nd. because I mean, they run off of. I mean, they are ran completely off of writers, and a lot of times the hosts are also writers and are also in the guild. Oh. You know, um, that's this. It's very similar with um with Quinta Bronson and on Abbott Elementary. She's the creator of the show, but she's also uh, and she's an actress on the show, but she's also a writer. And so because she's a writer now, she was out there striking with everybody else last week. So she cannot be involved with anything that's happening with Abbott because she's a writer. Wow. OK, so was Abbott done for its season? Um, I'm not sure how far they're in, but I would say like if I'm sure they have. If, if it's a network show, I'm sure they have, you know, some Content. episodes in there. So yeah. tell us a difference. So we talked about network shows and how their schedule would allow them to get, you know, we we won't say a year because that, that sounds way too generous, but th they got stuff. What about the streaming sites? They're different. They're run on different schedules. What What's happening with yeah. them? Honestly, I mean, the part of the thing and part of the reason why we're striking is because we don't know. You know, we don't get the information. We're not given the data. You know, we don't really know what these streamers are doing. We don't know what the numbers really are. We don't know how we actually get paid. So, you know, you just have to sort of think that, you know, when we, the um, our guild, they release the proposals and the offers um, that we sent to them and the offers that we got back. And if you look at those offers, it was very clear that they, they were not coming like they weren't to me coming to the table, honestly, like they weren't budging. It was a lot of, you know, we reviewed this and we're not going to counter. There was a lot of that, you know, and and just even like, like we were talking about with like with ABC, CBS, like when those shows come on uh, the next day, you can see their ratings, you know, 11 million people watch this show or whatever. But we don't get that kind of information or particularly really get that information from streaming and especially where it lines up to how much we're paid in residuals it no one really understands how that works and they don't really want to release the data to give us that so it it sort of drives back to this original thing is like i don't know how much they have i mean for streamers they have to have content all year so you know who knows how many projects that they have but i would say that if if they were in the writers room on any of these projects, then they're done for it because there's no way that they can be produced. Right. And if they do have, I think like we just saw, I think I I read like um House of Dragon said that like all the scripts were in, and so they were basically just in sort of like post production or they were just shooting. Mm -hmm. But like I said, you know, that's a tricky thing because as somebody who has been doing this for eight years when you produce an episode of TV, like you, the production draft goes in, you go to set and then there's going to be like, by the time you're done shooting, there's like six or seven additional drafts that we are changing dialogue to accommodate locations, to accommodate the actors, to accommodate if there's night shoot, you know, so things are constantly changing. So you're so, saying it's almost impossible though, to take those scripts that were done earlier and say, this is going to be the final product and we're going to produce off of those scripts because yeah, what happens if you're on the set and you need to change the dialogue? What do they do in those situations? Um, either they're going to improvise or they're just, they're going to either improvise or they're just not going to do it. And so, and you know, that then, 
affects the quality of what we, you know, of the work that we put out there because clearly we want to work and we want to put our best work out there. But it's like, if this is the only recourse that we have, then this is the only recourse that we have. So just to be clear, Kirk, we're not talking like news shows. So people were asking, well, what about, you know, Good Morning America or CBS Morning? Those shows, are they impacted by the writer's strike? For the most part, you know, certain shows, like I know like most of the night shows, um, they have writers. And I think like a couple of the morning shows, um, like um, I'm not sure which ones, but like, you know, like there's Tamron Hall, Kelly Clarkson, you know, all those, like some of those shows do have writers. So now some of those shows are still going because they take weeks ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So, but if they have writers, then you will start to see in the Reruns. weeks to come that those shows will stop. Yeah. Okay. They'll just start running reruns. Yep. Yeah. Also, I, I guess the biggest issue that seems to me, if someone looking from the outside in is this whole issue of artificial intelligence and how these chat bots are going to be used i've used some of these chat bots to write speeches uh you know to write all kinds of things and i have to imagine that that's looming large in this conversation with you know the negotiations that are happening with the major studios about any kind of commitment not to just replace you all is that any is that a fear that writers Um, have is that you know one day we may just come to work and a robot is doing our work i think that like you just said, you said that you use it to help you write a speech. So the the sort of what we're trying to do is as writers and thinkers, like think ahead. So what could happen is that AI could write a skeleton of a script and then we then have to come in and then work on that skeleton. You right. know, but I think that what other people need to realize is that like AI is not just going to really affect us. It's going to affect the actors also background work will be completely gone because they're going to just use AI to populate the background. Voiceover work, voiceover work, it's gone. Voiceover work. So this is going to impact so many other things. And so for us as writers, we're trying to get ahead of that, just like we were trying to get ahead of the internet stuff in in, in 2007. We're trying to get ahead of that and say like, listen, sure, these things have capabilities and, and maybe we can figure out how to work it, but we don't want to be beholden to some technology. And we also don't want human beings to be losing their sort of business and the way that many people break into the business because of AI. Yeah. When we come forward, uh, Kirk, I want to talk about more about AI. I want to talk about what's in the proposal uh, put forth by the writers and the responses from the bit big networks because it doesn't seem like you guys are getting close to any kind of resolution. Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right. I'm talking with Kirk Moore. He is a member of the Writers Guild of America. He has credits for American Crime, 13 Reasons and for Life, and he, amongst uh, 11,499 of his colleagues, are striking, are asking for the Motion Picture Association and those big studios to make some concessions. So, Kirk, tell us what's in that settlement proposal that was prepared by the WGA. What what are some of the the, the highlights? 
So some of the highlights, one is a mini rooms. So I'll kind of give a, try to give a little bit of a, what a mini room is. So traditionally, like you would have a writer's room that would, you know, construct the season and, and do all the episodes. And typically those rooms um, traditionally would run about 20 weeks. Um, now that because there are shorter seasons with, you know, eight episode seasons, six episode seasons, um, those rooms are getting much smaller. And what are, what's happening is that studios are now, before they actually green light a series, they will put together a mini room where it was supposed to just actually help push the season forward. Say, for example, they would uh, a person would sell a script and the studio would say, well, we're not really sure. So let we want to read about three more, you know, two or three more scripts. So they would get a mini room to prepare those two or three more scripts and then they would order the season. Now they're just using mini rooms to write the full seasons. Mm -hmm. um, and so as opposed to writers working 20 weeks, um, we're only working sometimes 10 weeks, sometimes eight weeks. And and because the episodes, you know, traditional TV, it was like, you know, 20, 22 episodes. Now it's like eight to 12. And most writers who are producers, we get paid per episode. Oh, okay. So when as the episodes are getting smaller, we're like, well, we need to get paid more per episode right. because you all are not ordering as many episodes. And they're like, no. So the rate that you get paid per episode has not changed, but the number of episodes has shrunk. So that yes. 20 is now eight, but it's not like you're getting the same money for the eight that you got paid yes. for the 20. They're still paying exactly. you per episode, except now you multiply that times eight versus multiplying that by 20. So that's one of the issues, the mini rooms. What's another right. big issue in and, your proposal? And, and with that, so we get hired on, on based on minimum. So there's like, a minimum that you can pay a writer at a certain level, whether it's a staff writer, a producer, executive producer. And so what we're trying to do is get an increase on those minimums mm. because we're not getting as many episodes. So we asked for a 6.5% increase and they did not agree to that. So, you know, it's stuff like that. Or um, again, with the, with our residuals, because our streaming residuals are kind of trash. Um, and because we don't know technically like what's popular, we're asking them like we want a, a sort of a stricter numbers based residual so that we so that we understand how we're getting paid based on how successful our shows are on those streaming platforms. Give but us an explain residuals to us, because I think a lot of people hear that term. They're not clear what it means. Uh, so help right. us understand what residuals mean so, for someone like you and a, that's a writer. So what happens is that typically you get, we call it a green envelope. Um, you get a green check. And what that means is that once you're hired, um, if you either wrote your episode or produced your episode, or if you are a producer um, on the show, you get paid for every episode. So um, what that means is that like after the show airs, based on how many people watched it, if it was, whether it was on the internet, whether it was on streaming, whether it's international, um, we get paid um, a certain percentage based on all those things. And that happens quarterly. Um, so, but what happens is that like a lot of these streaming shows, like people are like, we don't know if this show was a hit 
or if this show you told me this show was a hit, but these residuals ain't hitting on nothing. You know what I'm saying? It's but you like, still get a check quarterly from the streamers, but you're not getting the breakdown of how they arrived at that check that they gave you. Yeah, I mean, it's you're not getting the breakdown, and also the money is just not like you know. I've worked on shows on broadcast. I've worked on shows on basic cable. I've worked on shows on streaming, and so you know. I was on 13 Reasons Why, which was supposedly when it came out, one of the biggest hits on on um, Netflix. But the residuals are nothing compared to what I got on American Crime, which was a moderate hit, you know, which was a moderate success and mostly a critical hit and not ne it didn't necessarily have a huge audience. But like the because um, residuals have been in place for broadcast for years we understand how we're getting paid there but like you know um I, I saw this video today um with snoop was talking and he was talking about you know how rappers and how musicians they're like i don't understand this he was like when i would release an album when i came out if it sold a million copies that album cost 9.99 i'm gonna i know that's nine million dollars and i'm gonna get a percentage of that we don't he's like but now with streaming they're saying, oh, they listen to your music for 300 hours. He like, what does that mean? What does that mean in money? And he actually even brought up the writer's strike and why we're, he was like, because he was like, that's what's happening to writers. He was like, they're asking streamers, yo, like, how are you actually dictating how we're getting paid? So who knows the formula for streamers? Obviously, their internal accounting departments know because they got to decide, am I sending you $1,000, $10,000, you know, a five dollars, whatever they're sending you, somebody internally has figured that out. So who knows that information? They know it, but the, <laughs> the question is, are they going to give us the data? And they don't necessarily want to. And you've been so asking for this, not just with this strike. I assume this is information you, yes. the writers and are the actors facing something very similar? Because actors get residuals as well. Do they well, get the so data? Um, no, no, they don't either. And I have a lot of friends who are sort of, you know, are like, you know, they're at the phase where they're sort of like guest star recurring. They haven't necessarily like gotten that lead yet. And and when you hear them talk, they're all talking about how they're getting sort of like what they were paid previous for recurring. They're now getting paid a day rate. So like they're they're also being affected by this because everybody is being penny pinched. Mm. So, you know, I think that actors are also feeling it. And if you sort of there was a there was a movie that was supposed to come out on Netflix. Um, it was going to be a romantic comedy by Nancy Myers, um, who did like It's Complicated and you know, all those all those romantic comedies. And the movie budget was one hundred and thirty million dollars. And that was just for like a romantic comedy. No you know, no special effects, no anything. And people were like, why is it so expensive? Well, the reason why is because these people, the writer, the actors, everybody is getting their money up front because they know they're not going to get any money on the back end and they can't trust the streamers to say, oh, we're going to give you 15% of the back end. We don't know what that is. So, so now they're demanding on the front end. So these budgets have gotten fatter. Because so the, the budgets are getting bigger, yes. Right, because the actors, the writers, everybody said, no, give me whatever I'm going to get right now because you might be sending me a dollar. 
come, and, you know, six years from and now, five literally years. you might get a dollar. Like that's no joke. Like that is no joke. No, you I've got residual checks. So I know I resist. They literally like, okay, you didn't need to write a check to send me this three dollars and fifty five cents. I feel exactly. you on that. You know, I, exactly. I think too. One of the things that that people think about is reality TV. Right. So we know with the last big writer's strike, what happened was we saw this explosion of reality TV that many of them are not members of the union. So they can produce and, you know, go to a marketplace without having to what some folks would say, you know, pay the fees that you would pay if you had uh, folks in the unions uh, involved in the production of these reality shows. I want to talk about right. when we come right. forward. What impact you think this time around reality TV may have? And are a lot of studios just going to trash their scripted shows and look for more opportunities to do reality non-union uh, projects because they can do it without having to deal with either, you know, SAG or the DGA or the WGA. Uh, when we come forward, more with Kirk Moore on the writer's strike that's impacting all of Hollywood. Right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, I'm talking with Kirk Moore. He is a member of the WGA. He has credits such as American Crime, 13 Reasons Why, and For Life. So, Kirk, we're talking about reality TV. We know 15 years ago when the writers went on strike, we saw this explosion of reality TV. What do you think is going to happen this time, particularly if this strike you know, drags on more than 30, 60, 90 days? Oh, you need to unmute yourself, Kirk. I have a different um, view of the sort of reality thing. So when we had the last strike, a few years before that last strike, American Idol premiered, I think in 2004 or five, which to me, I think actually is what actually began the sort of explosion of reality TV, especially for summer entertainment, um, because then the apprentice came after that there were a ton of you know how to you know, all all those things i think that yes the writers strike told showed networks that we now we have to put out more of these but a lot of these shows were already successful american american idol was 3 years i think into their season um and was the, was the biggest show on all of tv and so everybody was copying so then come the strike when they didn't have and they couldn't do any sort of original programming. So, of course, they sort of on there was an unload and reality TV because it had proven that it was a hit, especially in that specific time period when they needed sort of summer entertainment before they came back for the fall. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say now reality TV is sort of there's game shows, there's judge shows, <laughs> there's, you know, housewives there's there's a, a lot of different things so i i don't think that that i don't think that it's gonna necessarily change i feel like reality is reality it's everywhere now um and i think that that's it's gonna stay that way do i think that um we'll see more probably but i i just i don't think that there just will ever be an appetite for only reality tv you know um and so that's just where we draw the line like you know it's like 
there's only so much of housewives and all of that that people are going to be able to take. And, you know, that's why TV has been around for forever, even though reality TV has been around for now, what, 30 plus, you know, years now. Scripted is still there and it's still big. And it's actually more TV shows now than there were when we had the last strike, you know? Oh, so yeah, for sure. Given all the different networks and streaming sites. Exactly. And absolutely. So absolutely. So what's going to make these uh, Spick studios, what's going to bring them to the table to negotiate in good faith? We already talked about the fact that many, one at least has said, look, I got a year's worth of content so we can, you know, just wait this out. Uh, we know a lot of billionaires have been made by these big streaming sites, even though they cry broke and say, you know, they've lost subscribers and, you know, advertising dollars are down. That's yeah. all we hear about is, you know, how lean the the profit margins are. But we know that until they get that until they get that bonus at the end of the year. Well, I was going to say, but we know a lot of these people are making a whole lot of money. You know, a lot of these top executives, yeah. they're not missing, uh, you know, a beat in yeah. terms of money. But so what brings them to the table? I really feel, you know, part of it is going to be sort of like guild unity. I do think that if the other guilds get behind us, there's really nothing that they can do. And I ultimately do feel that, like, listen, I think that especially with the AI stuff, with the mini room stuff, with the residuals, you know, like you said earlier in the broadcast, a lot of writers did lose a lot in, two, in 07. And I think that ultimately writers feel and I can only speak for myself, but in talking to other writers, it's like, well, we kind of have to go broke in order to save what we know is the future of this business. And so we're going to fight it out just as long as they're going to fight it out. I have, I, I don't know what's going to bring them to the table, but I do think that if the other guilds start to strike, then, I mean, if people ain't coming to work, there's nothing you can do, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that that's going to be a large part of it. But I also feel that, you know, once they realize like, whoa, these writers are not fucking joking. Like, we're going to do this for as long as we can. Then then I think that they're going to realize that at the end of the day, the, again, even if you have a year's content in the bank, you still need to be developing so if the writers aren't working, then we aren't developing new shows so you can have stuff when that stuff gets old mm -hmm. or when that stuff runs out. So like right now, no one's developing. No one is giving studios stuff for them to have a year and a half from now. So like the, now they can't do anything. So ultimately, at some point, somebody's going to have to say, wait, this shit is going to run out. Like we have to come to the table in earnest. And so somebody's um, going to blink is what you're saying. That, that yes, has to happen. Yes. Is there a, you know, the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, got involved when LAUSD workers went on strike. It wasn't the teachers, but it was the, you know, the cafeteria workers, the janitors, the bus drivers. It, it was those employees that keep schools running. Uh, is there a possibility that someone, you know, some outside person that doesn't really have a horse in the game gets into this and, and can try to help this strike not because even though you said you're going to wait it out i imagine a lot of people that don't have savings you know don't have resources and are going to be yeah. really really financially impacted yeah. in a significant way yes i mean i i one of the misconceptions that people think that writers are rich like yes <laughs> there are writers there are writers who are doing really really well and who have $300 million overall deals, a hundred like that. Yes, there are those, but most writers are like working class people. And 
kind of we're like contract workers. We work 20 weeks on a show and then we have to find another show to go in the meantime to make sure that we can have employment for the rest of the year. So we're going from, you know, job to job. And so we just want to make sure that like that is as secure as it can possibly be. I'm glad you mentioned that because you're right. People think everybody that works in Hollywood is rich, right? It doesn't matter what you do. If you're an extra, you know, standing behind someone, if you're on a show and you get one line, I remember traveling with a friend of mine and she sat next to a producer who does reality TV. And we got off the plane. I was in the front of the plane. She was in the back. And she said, oh, my God, I sat next to this producer. I couldn't believe she was stunned when the producer told her what these reality stars got paid. She thought that these folks were balling. And I think, I don't know, the woman told her, you know, maybe per show they were getting 5,000, 7,000 or something. Not to say that's nothing. I don't want to minimize that as amount of money that some people make, but she thought, you know, that had to be in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. She was so shocked. Uh, to hear. So give us order of magnitude. What does a typical writer in the WGA make on a 20 episode show? Well, I, I mean, I, I can't remember the, the, so staff writers, I think like a staff writer, that's your first job. You know, I think the minimum is like, like 5,000 or $6,000. Actually it's like, maybe it's like a week or something like that, or like 4,000 a week. Mm-hmm. But what you have to realize is that most of us have agents we have managers, we have lawyers, some of us have accountants. So like off top, we're coming off like 25 to 30% off of whatever that check is. And then we have to pay taxes on that on top of that. So then that's another, you know, 30% off. So like that, whatever that's six thousand. Well, like you said, if you said it's four or five thousand a week for a staff writer times twenty. Let's give them eighty to a hundred thousand dollars. And as you said, thirty percent of that off the top to agents, managers, lawyers, accountants. So that hundred thousand is seventy thousand. And now I guess if you pick up, you know, what's it's fifty two weeks in a year. So maybe if you work all of those weeks, which doesn't seem to be likely, right? The average person is probably not working every week. But if you did, you're talking about taking home anywhere from $140,000 to $150,000 a year after you pay, you know, all those folks off the top. So obviously writers aren't poor. You know, that's considered, I'd say, you know, a good high middle class uh, job in America. You know, people making over $100,000 a year. But I think the more relevant point is look at what those CEOs and the C-suites in those studios make. So when people look at what the writers make, you know, look at what the heads of some of these streaming sites, you know, they're they're multi-millionaires, if not billionaires. Uh, many of them are billionaires. And, and I think that's what's so fundamentally unfair. You all are out there making these shows super, super successful. And you just want to share in the, you know, the, the profits, the profits. Yeah, that, that's just plain and simple. And we know in this country, yeah. workers often bear the brunt. We have a problem in this country. We make a few people at the top extra, extra rich. uh, And the people that do all the heavy lifting oftentimes can, particularly in a city like L.A. and cities like New York, barely survive. Uh, And that's also something to keep in mind. You know, so my heart goes out. uh, I'm a SAG member myself, so I hope that SAG does stand in solidarity with the WGA. I hope the DGA stands in solidarity. This is an issue, like you said, not just impacting writers, 
uh, anyone that's working in this business has a horse in this race and needs to be concerned about this. And the economy of cities that are going to suffer because eventually some of those productions that have not already stopped, uh, others will start to yes. be shut down and it will have a ripple effect on economies uh, throughout this country. Thank you so much, Kirk, for sitting down with me and sharing uh, mm -hmm. the, your story and helping us better understand what's happening. Like I said, we're going to be watching this very closely and standing in solidarity with you and wish you the best of luck. Hope this strike Thank ends so pretty much. quickly. Absolutely. Uh, all right, y'all, this is it from me. You can continue to follow me on all social media platforms at Ariva Martin. And the next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.